You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to not just another episode of Lords of Limited. We've got a big one this week. Episode number 50. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> that air horn, though. My name is Ben Worry, and joining me on the line that you heard doing his patented air horn impression is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we're over the hill. Ben, I'm all dressed up. I'm wearing a tuxedo. I'm very excited to be celebrating episode 50 with you. I could not imagine a better person to share it with. I am <laughs> rolled out of bed and put on gym shorts and a t-shirt. So Classic. Classic. Perfect. So we've got quite the doozy of an episode coming up for you today, but uh, we wouldn't be the 50th episode of Lords of Limited if we weren't checking in on that trophy leaderboard. How have the drafts been treating you this week? Drafts have been going pretty darn well. I'm up to 68 drafts. It's weird. When I saw that number, I do not feel like I've done 68 drafts yet. I just feel like I've barely gotten my feet wet in the format. Mm -hmm. So I've got 68 drafts under my belt, 20 trophies, 130 and 68 overall record for a 65.6% win rate that I'm going to round up to 66%. I was so close to an actual 66%, but then I O2'd twice this week. Oh, no. Yeah, well, if you've just gotten your feet with with 68 drafts, I guess I'm like above my knees with 171 drafts. I have 51 trophies still in third place in the intermediate queues, 342 to 158 win-loss for a 68% win rate. Then I have to say two of those 51 trophies are in the competitive queues. Ooh, look at you, swimming with the big boys. Yeah, just just taking my time. Going to the deep end of the pool. And going to the deep end, exactly. Doing laps, adult swim, other pool references and analogies. All right, so the next thing that we must do before getting into this sweet, sweet episode is we have to talk about the Patreon because it is the place to be. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is the place where you can give back to the show if you so choose. Uh, we started this. I don't even remember when we started this now that we're... We're 50 episodes deep if we're reflecting on our past. I wonder when we did this, but it feels Sometime like maybe... in December, it feels like. And to whoever the person that nudged us over the edge was, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We'd have to go back and look at the email. Yeah, we had we got a few emails from people like wanting to give to the show, but we didn't have a Patreon set up because we thought we were not worthy. But boy, howdy, have you all made us feel so, so great with your uh, appreciation for the show. So we try and give back. Uh, if you want to donate to the show, we give you access to the Lords of Limited Discord. That is where you want to be if you want to discuss draft picks, if you want to look at 3-0 deck lists, if you want to talk nonsense in the off-topic chat room, um, if you want to help us figure out what we want to do for the next episode, we certainly did a lot of that for, for this one. You get access to our show notes or some pre-show or pre-show recording for some higher tier donations. And we also want to make sure we shout out new patrons each and every week. So this week we want to thank Richard, Christine, Jared, Geronimo, and Ben. Not you, Ben. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate your support. Yes, cannot say thank you enough. It is incredible. I can't say it enough. It's incredible to have people like what we do and support it. Yeah, it is. It's it's been a, an amazing ride. I hope hope we get to be doing this for for fifty more and and beyond that for sure. All right, so. We weren't really even going to do anything special for the 50th episode. I don't think we were like, well, maybe we'll do take a look back and a look to the future, talk about like more goals for Patreon. Then we decided to do something a little bit off the deep end, and we are going to attempt to do 50 Dominaria hot takes in 50 minutes. So we're going to jam pack what could be 50 episode topics all into one episode minute at a time. Are you ready for this, Ben? I think you got it. Unlock. You're a professional talker. You're going to carry me. We got this. <laughs> okay. So 
this will be, you know, a little lenient because sometimes we may have to, you know, behind the scenes, things may get shorter or longer on the podcast. So, but I am going to try and keep us honest here with a timer as we dive in to topic number one. Are you ready, Ben? Let's do it. All right. Three, two, one, go. So what cards are we taking over Icy Manipulator? This is number one. So I think Karn, Teferi, Lyra Dawnbringer, History of Banalia, but really History of Banalia is only for money considerations, Multani, and maybe... What do you think about Inbolus's Clutches over Icy Manipulator? That's probably terrible, right? The only cards I think I'm taking over Icy for Pack 1, Pick 1 are money cards online. I think if I were at a GP or a PT, I would take Icy Manipulator over everything. You're not taking Multani over Icy? I don't think so. All right. All right. Number two, what are we doing? Number two, Helm of the Host versus In Bolus's Clutches, Pack 1, Pick 1. Uh, this is a super tough pick. I know you had a long conversation on your stream about this. Mm-hmm. This pick's very close. I'm a little lower on Helm of the Host than I think most people are. This is a pretty easy, or not not easy, but a clear Bolus's Clutches for me. I would also be on Fight with Fire over Helm of the Host, Pack 1, Pick 1. And I'm sure I could come up with other cards that are uncommon if I really racked my brain. Yeah, I think like... Helm of the Host is very, very powerful, but it requires some setup cost in that you need a creature, and you also need to be able to, like, put four mana into casting it and five mana into equipping it and not get blown out, whereas Clutches just, like, always does the thing you want it to do, right? It's just, like, always going to take their best thing, and then you have their best thing. I absolutely agree. I think especially the part about just getting crushed by instant speed removal or blink of an eye, you know, Helm of the Host can win you the game, but trying to get Helm of the Host on a creature can also single-handedly lose you the game. It's insanely powerful in one situation, right? When you're at parity or you're ahead, I guess two situations. But if you're like slightly behind or, you know, developing your board, it does stone nothing. It's like tens in a couple categories and zeros in another. Yeah. Whereas Clutches is always going to do the best thing. All right, number three, Skittering Surveyor is the best common to pack one, pick one. I know if you've listened to the show, you've heard me say this before, but the power level of cards in this set is very high and splashable catch-all removal at common exists and multicolor bomb legends at uncommon, think Tatiova or Slimefoot or Raph Capuchin, they make splashing so desirable. And then you might say, well, Ethan, but what if I'm not trying to splash? Well, it's even good in two-color decks as it's a historic trigger. Um, it's sacrifice fodder for like Thalad Omnivores or Thalad Soothsayers. It's a chump blocker, so it finds you a land and then maybe gains you some life. It's unlockable with Tetsuko. I mean, really, what can this card not do? It's so good. You're taking out an insurance policy when you take yeah. Surveyor Pack 1, Pick 1. That's what mm-hmm. you're doing. Like, sometimes you Pack 1, Pick 1 it, and you don't. it doesn't make your deck. I've cut it from my deck before after Pack 1, Pick 1-ing it. But the flexibility that it offers you, taking that Pack 1, Pick 1 says... I'm going to have a draft that is not a train wreck, most likely, if I pack one, pick one surveyor. And that's a great feeling because drafts are hard to navigate in this format. Yeah, for sure. Next hot take in defense of Llanowar Elves. So limited resources came out last week saying that Llanowar Elves was, you know, not as good as you thought it was because it's not a curve out format. And I sort of disagree with that. And I think you do too. Mm-hmm. Llanowar Elves ramping you from one to three is not what makes it good. Getting to your fourth, fifth, and sixth land drops is what's even better. So I would argue that Land of War Elves is even better in this format than it normally is because the mana is always good. Normally, Land of War Elves loses a lot of value if you don't play at turn one. It's relevant on turns one through five as a play, and sometimes even later in the game if you've got lots of mana sinks. I've had decks that want 10, 12, 14 mana before. These decks are super mana hungry, and turn one elves or turns like two through five elves is a very strong play in this format. I still think it's the best green common. I couldn't agree more. Now, 
number five, what cards go up in value in aggressive versions of the blue-red Wizards deck? So, Ben, I know you've, you're feeling still a little at sea when it comes to drafting blue-red, so you've assembled a nice list here for some cards that you think are more at home in the aggressive versions, and I think I totally agree. Number one, for sure, is going to be Adelie's The Cinder Wind. That is, I think, the card that sways me most into wanting to be an aggressive version of this deck, backing that up with spells, for sure, like Opt and Warlord's Fury. Of course, the removal, Shiv and Fire, and Wizard's Lightning is going to be great. Gichu Lava Runner, that's the one-drop, one-two, that... Uh, gains haste and gets plus one plus one if you have two spells in the yard so these are all sort of working together with your spells that you have your like cantrips opts and, and warlord's fury so those are all going to work well together then you've got some tempo plays with academy journey mage and blink of an eye to keep your opponent off of their plays that impact the board pizza mage the gichu journey mage that can etb to deal two that's going to be pretty dang good most at home here and sorcerer's wand can even close out some games when you get your opponent down to like six or, or four life or something yeah, it just feels like you've got a lot of moving pieces, and sometimes I just don't have enough of some of them, and then your deck's just not as good, right? If you've got Adelies and Lava Runners, but you don't have the Ops and the Warlords Furies, that's a problem, right? If mm-hmm. you've got the Ops and the Warlords Furies, but you don't have an Adelies, they're not going to be as good as they were. Like, you have to have all these moving pieces in the right ratios, it feels like, for either version of the Wizards deck to come together. And when it does, it's outstanding, but it feels yes. hard to get the right mix of pieces. Yeah, I think I think you want to think about it like... I don't know, like a cube deck or like maybe when like you were drafting something like spider spawning in Innistrad, like a, a kind of deck where you're thinking about like, I'm taking this card out of the pack and then hoping that this card wheels kind of thing. Things like, you know, you want Warlord's Fury in the deck, but you can also probably count on getting those cards late, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And also we want to take a look at what cards go up in controlling Blue-Red Wizards builds because the deck can operate both ways, right? Mm-hmm. So in controlling builds, Gitu Chronicler, Vidalian Arcanist, Divination, Shivan Fire, again, is great here. Fiery Intervention, I think, goes up a lot in a controlling version. Deep Freeze, I think, goes up in a controlling version because if you're planning for the game to go longer, sometimes they're going to have threats that you have to have an answer for and the damage-based red spells are not going to get the job done. So you're going to want at least a copy of Deep Freeze, I think. Talarian Scholar, the 2-3... Merfolk Trickster is great here. Cloud Reader Sphinx, you're going to have time to get to five mana and really win in the late game with your Cloud Reader Sphinx. Wizard's Retort, having a, a hard removal, not hard removal, a hard counter spell for things your opponents might do in the late game. All of those things are going to be performing better in the controlling version of Blue Red Wizards. Yeah, totally agree. Next up, number seven, how to build around Lich's Mastery. So at the Pro Tour, they did the sort of like archetype breakdown of drafting around Lich's Mastery, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and Dustin Stern has been posting on Twitter this week a few 3-0 deck lists featuring this card. I've had a chance to draft it a bunch this week. Also, not 3 0 with it yet, but I do feel like I have a pretty good handle on it, and I think the card is actually pretty powerful. So here are the things that I think you want for that card to work you want to have a way to make multiple bodies or or two for one cards so phalids like sapperling migration or spore swarm call the cavalry even if you end up in a black white version of the deck because i think this deck really tends to be black white or black green skittering surveyor is good because it like finds a land and is a body to sacrifice or to chump block for lich's mastery you want to have some amount of self-mill in Windgrace Acolyte or Homerid Explorer or Weight of Memory to fuel your graveyard because your graveyard becomes a resource once mastery is online. Life gain is, of course, busted. So Mesa Unicorn, Danatha, Windgrace Acolyte again. That card, that card, that card of this format, Navigator's Compass. 
Healing Grace, of course. Uh, you want to have ways to continue to impact the game with no cards left in your library. So something that's a big mana sink like Slimefoot the Stowaway is great in this deck. Muldrotha as a way to, to keep churning through your graveyard. Uh, having the Gichu Chronicler Soul Salvage Infinite Loop. Um, so you want to have ways to, to gain life, ways to make multiple bodies, and ways to continue to impact the board even if you're not drawing cards from your deck. You left off the best one, Croson Druid. I saw you gain 10, draw 10 oh, on your stream. Oh, and Druid. Oh, how could I forget? <laughs> I did gain 10, draw 10. That was pretty incredible. All right, next up, number eight, how to build around Jaya Ballard. She's most at home in blue-red or red-black decks, and you really want to be able to protect her when she's cast and have a lot of spells in your deck. You know, you've, I think, had some success with her in the Teamer spells deck that was able mm -hmm. to ramp and not only utilize the rummaging ability, but also her ritual ability. So it really shines if you're trying to ramp to fight with fire, for example. Yeah. She can let you dig towards fight with fire and find it. And if you've got Gitu Chroniclers in the mix there, like I've faced a Jaya Ballard, Gitu Chronicler fight with fire deck that just felt totally busted. It felt like they were going to fight with fire me for 10 every game. Yeah, I think that card really can do a lot of work. All right, number nine, when to draft and run legendary sorceries. I think it's been a sort of roller coaster ride throughout the format of like when to take it, how powerful are they, are we up on them, are we down on them, how many legendary creatures do you need? Um, so in my opinion, I believe the Grixis sorceries are the best ones. So that's Karn's Temporal Sundering, Jaya's Immolating Inferno, and Yogmoth's Vile Offering. Blue and red, I think, are the best ones for reasons of they have the cheapest legends to enable them uh, the problem that i think the black one has is that all of black's legends are tough to double spell with you've got like ergaros you've got whisper blood liturgist you've got yargle all these like clunky five and six drop legends at, at uncommon that are tough to allow you to then cast your your sorceries green i think is clearly unplayable unless you're memeing and i'm pretty off of urza's ruinous blast i think uh much like how people think of cast down as like not really doing what you want to do like it's hard to kill that legendary thing because that's usually the thing you want to kill urza's ruinous blast does the same thing but it's also tough to set up and like you're probably going to kill some of your own creatures in the mix as well so i think you want to think of these legendary sorceries as splash cards uh with like having a minimum of three legendaries don't forget that on sarah's wings and in bolus's clutches count as legendary creatures in your deck and i would also think of black blade reforged very similarly to legendary sorceries in terms of like wanting probably around three legendary creatures before i'm excited about putting black blade in my deck moving on to number 10 why auras are bad Removal and bounce is everywhere in this format, and it's so good. So just a short list here. Blink of an Eye, Academy Journey Mage, Blessed Light, Gideon's Reproach, Seal Away, Eviscerate, Vicious Offering, all of that and more, your aura has to be so impactful and has to go unanswered for it to really be good. So some of the some of the auras that we do want to play, On Sarah's Wings, In Bolos's Clutches, Arcane Flight, if you've got a couple turtles running around. But other than that, Dub does not get the job done. The red plus two plus one in Menace does not get the job done. You're going to lose to those cards. I just lost to those cards yesterday, but you should not be the one putting them in your deck. They are too high risk and not a high enough reward for the impact they're going to have on the game. Your good opponents are going to have answers. We've talked about it before. We're going to talk about it again. Number 11, when to play Navigator's Compass. Okay, so we all saw Sam Black's nutty five-color deck at the Pro Tour. A lot needs to come together for Compass to be the card you want. Your deck has to be powerful in terms of individual card quality. You need ways to make up for the card disadvantage that you're providing yourself. And bonus points if you care about the historic trigger. So if you either care about it being cast or if you have a way to use it once it's on the battlefield. Or if you care about the life gain, cough, cough, Lich's Mastery. 
Um, it's also <laughs> super important if you're trying to double splash. So if you're like blue, black, splashing, green, and white. So if you're splashing two different colors, you want to be able to have compass as a way to like, that's when it's sort of getting into the territory of being better than than maybe a land because it's, it is tapping for, for multiple sources. Good for multicolored uncommons, good for single colored removal, eviscerate, blessed light, uh, splashing, shalai in a green deck, that sort of thing. I would also like to note that you should not be looking to do that. You should not be looking to double splash in this yeah, format. Yeah, I mean, sure. may, maybe if you've got grow from the ashes, but certainly not like, oh, I can pick up Navigator's Compass late, therefore I can get away with a double splash. Like, Don't be trying to do that. Your draft should force you into that. Also, I want to say that you're just like not getting Compass late anymore, and I don't know if it's because of the Sam Black meme deck, but like you know, especially because I've drafted Lich's Mastery a handful of time this week, I've been like, oh, I'm looking for these like compasses to wheel, and then they don't. So I don't know what's going on, but I want it to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Number twelve cards that are worth splashing for, especially double splashes if you've got Compass or Grow from the Ashes. So these are all single-colored cards that you might be splashing one half of or single-colored in themselves. Uh, Arvad may be in a deck with a lot of legendaries. Ariel, Deragaz, Garna, Joyra, Muldrotha, Rathcapishan, Rona, Slimefoot, Tatiova, Teferi. Fight with Fire as a single-colored card. Maybe you mize that second mountain and hope to get there, but just counting on it being three-mana deal five. Eviscerate, Blessed Light, Eldest Reborn, Cast Down, Vicious Offering, Haphazard Bombardment, Mirari Conjecture in the right deck, Time of Ice in the right deck, Shalai, Siloe, and On Sarah's Wings if you've got Turtles and your base blue. That's the list of every card I want to splash. I went through the entire card image gallery on Wizards, and I think that's it. Those are the cards you're splashing there. That's awesome. I think it's pretty funny that we put these two points back to back. When to play Compass, and we're like, you shouldn't be looking to do this, but here are all the fun <laughs> cards you can be splashing. <laughs> It's so tempting. It is so tempting. Number 13, when to draw first in the format. So I have actually started doing this. I think this is like one of the first times in a limited format that I have thought about drawing first and, and done it. When my muscle memory doesn't fight against me, I'll like go into the match and be like, I'm going to draw first. And then I click play first. <laughs> uh, so I found that if I think my card quality in my deck is very high, but I have a little to no card draw in my deck. So if I'm maybe a black green deck or a black white deck that, that has a high power level, but not a lot of like, you know, you're not non-blue decks, basically, so you don't have divinations or weight of memories or ways to, to gain card advantage, that I think drawing first is a good way to get that little bit of an edge in, in, in the card advantage apart department. There's also a non-zero amount of people who have sketchy mana bases in this format, and I think putting them on the play can make their mulligan decisions difficult. I think that's another reason to be on the draw. If you think your deck mulligans very poorly, uh, I think you may want to put yourself on the draw. The last reason I would do this is if I have a lot of cheap removal. So if I think my turn one and turn two or, or one drop and two drop removal like shivan fire and vicious offering is going to match up well with my opponents maybe two three and four turn plays then i can afford to be on the draw because it's not going to be as punishing to me uh, and my cheaper spells are going to line up better with their more expensive spells so are you ever drawing first in the dark yes oh i have never done that before i've drawn first after i've seen what my opponent's deck is no I, i've been drawing first in the dark and not been upset about it interesting yeah i've not been that brave yet but I think generally I'm on the side of playing decks that don't have like tons of early plays. Like if I've got, I could see doing that if I had Sheevan Fires and Vicious Offerings in abundance in my deck, but I don't know that I'd be brave enough to do that otherwise. Yeah. Well, what can I say? I'm a brave man. You are brave. Moving on. Number 14, when to play Fungal Plots. I, at the start of the format, I had a very good experience with Fungal Plots and I thought it was insane and should probably go in every green deck with creatures. I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. 
it's definitely like there's a tension there with sapperling decks because you really want sapperling migration which is not a creature that you can't get back with your graveyard and you probably have better things to do than sacrifice two of your sapperlings to draw a card and gain two life i think it's almost better in a non sapperlings deck as just like a grindy value engine you can put it in a deck with a lot of ways to self mill goes very well with hot explorers if you're on that plan mm-hmm. but it's also time consuming too so you got to have enough time to grind out those sapperlings and draw those cards it's it's a narrower card than i think i thought at the start of the format yeah i think it's more of a sideboard card for sure than a main deck card Number 15, when to play Zalfrin Void. The TLDR is never. The more descriptive version is, I mean, you can, but be sure you're not screwing up your color requirements and realize that Scry 1 is not a very impactful effect for the potential negative impact it can have on your mana base. Number 16, Blink of an Eye versus Academy Journey Mage. I am on Blink over Academy Journey Mage 10 out of 10 times. We just had a discussion about this. I think you're on Blink 9 out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. The exception being when you're in a very dedicated assertive wizards deck uh, where you know you're really leveraging the tempo and the three power from the Academy Journey Mage. So you're full on in the aggro blue red wizards plan uh, where that Journey Mage is going to be costing four. Other than that, you're taking Blink of an Eye over Journey Mage every time. Number 17, how highly to take Grow from the Ashes. Grow from the Ashes is probably the second best green common in the format behind Land War Elves. Would you agree with that? Mm, I don't know. He's going to agree with that. I haven't played green enough. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You don't like green or something? Yeah. I just okay. feels bad. Anyway, so Grow from the Ashes is, is the second best green common behind Land War Elves, and there are certainly times when I'm green and I take it over Land War Elves because of what it will allow me to do with my mana base. Um, the card is super strong. I also sometimes take it over Skittering Surveyor, but not often. It allows for some really explosive starts and some really greedy mana bases to have no trouble at all to cast a lot of powerful spells. Number 18, why Naban is a good first pick. So the floor on Naban is super high. He's blue, which is the best color. You should be trying to get into blue if you can. He's a two drop that you're not going to be embarrassed to play. Sometimes your opponent derps around and you get into four damage with him. He's a legend, uh, which is good. That opens you up to potential legendary sorcerers down the road. It triggers historic. He's unblockable when combined with Tetsuko. Just does a lot. And if you end up in Blue-Red Wizards, he's going to be an absolute bomb, doubling your Gitu Chroniclers, your Journey Mages, your Adepts, all of those cards. Just absolute bomb in Blue-Red Wizards. And if you don't end up in exactly Blue-Red Wizards, you might still have an Academy Journey Mage or two floating around in your blue deck that you'll get some minor synergy with. And being a legend is very relevant. Number 19, why Opt is good in this format? Not just good, but good in this format. So there, there have been previous formats where we've been pretty low on this card. But we'll say it a lot about Dominaria, the power level of cards in this set is very high. So getting to see more of those powerful cards in a game is good. So we'll talk about churning through your deck, velocity, as Ryan Sachs calls it. Uh, You want to couple that with the fact that blue cares about spells with cards like Adelie's the Cinderwind, the Mirari Conjecture, even the Gitu Lava Runners in red. Uh, You've got a real stew going when you're looking at these uh, cheap cantrips that let you churn through your deck a bit faster. Back-to-back, number 20, why Warlord's Fury is good in this format. Same deal with Blue-Red, especially the Blue-Red Aggro Wizards deck caring about spells. It really matters there for your G2 Lava Runners to turn them on. And if you're planning on attacking quickly, you know, turning your 3-2 attackers into creatures that have First Strike also makes those 3-2s a lot, lot, lot better. Uh, this card's great in combination with Quende, giving your whole team First Strike and then Double Strike as a result of Quende, but you got to be careful not to get blown out by Bounce or Instant Speed Removal on Quende there. And maybe even Gaia's Protector, that 3 and a green 4-2 <laughs> that must be blocked, according to Orion's X. There might be something there. Ben, we, we, we're doing great. 20 minutes in, 
20 points done. Oof. Number 21, Teamer is the real kicker deck. Teamer is a great deck in this format and is where I believe Holar is most at home and where you're leveraging a lot of those kicker matters cards. The key here is getting access to Blink of an Eye. Uh, getting a, a card that has Kicker, a card that impacts the board and that replaces itself, is really busted. More assertive decks take advantage of Bloodstone Goblin and Skizik, which those in combination with each other are very powerful, having like a 3-3 Menace attacking the same turn as a 5-3 Trample Haste attacks. Uh, more grindy decks can take advantage of Grow from the Ashes and Gitu Chronicler. Surprise, surprise, the way to make red-green good was to just add blue. That's the way to make any deck good. Just add blue. <laughs> Just add blue. Number 22, Runamuck, colon, the secret to aggro. This card is fine. It's playable. It's If you're ahead, it's good. But it's a really tough to make it work. You have to get into a certain board state. You have to be ahead of your opponent. They have to be tapped out pretty much before I would feel safe casting this card. If you get in that situation, Runamuck's outstanding. But if you find yourself on the back foot at all, this card is miserable. I cannot tell you the number of times... I put a run amok in a deck that wasn't like was sort of aggressive, but not completely aggressive and then was stuck in my hand and I couldn't cast it and just felt miserable. So if you get in the situation where run amok is powerful, where you curve out, you're ahead of your opponent, they're having to tap out to play their blockers and you can mow their blockers down with run amok and still get some damage in the card is very good. I think that's just a very narrow situation. So be wary of run amok can turn on the aggro decks though, for sure. For sure. Well, speaking of aggro decks, 23, what decks want Adamant Will? This is courtesy of Dave Rude, who I think likes white the most in this format and often comes in my chat and is uh, upset that I, I don't have more white cards in my deck and that I'm passing Adamant Wills. This card sort of eludes me a little bit. Like, I'm not sure, like, what I'm supposed to be doing with it. Um, you sort of just said you think almost all white decks want one copy. Is that just because white decks are more on the assertive end? It just does so much. It lets you double spell. It's a very relevant double spell card is what I would think. Mm -hmm. So it lets you leverage attackers, lets you leverage blockers as indestructible creatures. It blanks a removal spell. It's like a one mana more dive down, except the effect is also more relevant in combat than dive down. And I just frequently have been valuing double spelling in this format higher and higher and higher. And I think Adamant Will is a very good, efficient way to do that. It's a flexible card that costs two mana. I will say when I have cast it, I have felt very good about it, and I often feel bad when my opponents cast it, so that's probably just a clue that I should be taking it more. Number 24, Thalid Omnivore is secretly a black-green gold card. I'm not sure that's entirely true. We should have a short discussion about that. So uh, tell me why you think this is a secret black-green gold card. Okay, so I definitely think this card is oppressive and often very difficult to deal with. But I think it's only really suited that way in black-green where you have expendable bodies. In all other color pairs, like sure, in black you have access to Deathbloom Thalad or maybe a token off of Fungal Infection. But I don't think you really get to take advantage of the threat of activation because theoretically, unless you're playing like bad creatures, because you just don't have the creatures to sacrifice to it. Like maybe you get lucky with something that has like a deep freeze on it or like you can sacrifice something in response to removal maybe. But Unless I've got Skittering Surveyors floating around, I don't feel like in other colors that I really want to be sacrificing the creatures that I've put in my deck. So I still think this is better than the three and a black menace in your four drop slot if you want to four drop three, three. What do you think about that? Like even in not black green? 100% agree. Okay, so that that's where I'm at on the card. I still think it's playable in non black green decks. It's not going to shine. It's going to be like a C, C minus in non-black green decks as opposed to like a b minus or a b i i have cut it more often than not because by the end of deck building i go oh i have 12 creatures in my deck right. i can't play thalid omnivore in that deck 
Right. That makes sense. That's what I think. To that end, number 25, Sapling Migration is ba 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 overrated. I think this card requires a lot of synergy from your deck. It certainly can be good in, in powerful black-green sapling decks. The synergy is there for sure with Song of Freilis, Wild Onslaught, Spore Crown Thalid, etc. But it is not as intrinsically powerful on its own as my boy Llanowar Elves. Yep, Sapling Migration is overrated confirmed. Number 26, how many divinations is too many? Answer, we reject the premise of this question. 23 divinations, 17 islands. Go. <laughs> Go. So realistically, probably five, six, five? Six maybe is too many. I think I would probably run five. I mean, I don't know. What, what, the rest of, what does the rest of your deck look like? These questions are always so like, when, when I get questions like this, I'm like, what does your deck look like? There's no way to answer this. But if your deck can support it, probably five, maybe six. I don't know. Drawing cards is good. Number 27, are we really forcing blue in this format, or are we drafting with preferences? So this is the first time in a set that I've tracked my color pairs when tracking my win rate. 70% of my decks have been blue, which certainly seems like more of a forcing tendency than a preference, but I don't feel like I'm forcing. I'm not going into a draft like trying to be blue. I have in my mind the idea that blue is the best color and like I should be there, but I don't feel like I'm skewing picks in terms of power level that much. I just like keep seeing blink of an eye sixth and taking that as a signal. Yes. Oh God. Six pick blink of an eye is a huge signal. That card's insanely good. That happens like every draft. Yeah. It feels like if you want to get into blue, you can. And I just really want to. So to this end, uh, recently I've had the first pick a couple times of Cloud Reader Sphinx blink of an eye versus Song of Freilies. And I've picked Cloud Reader Sphinx, which, you know, you could call forcing. Like Song of Freilies is probably intrinsically more powerful when it comes together, but there's setup cost there and you're not always going to get into the Sapperling deck, whereas Cloud Reader Sphinx is very high probability to make my deck because it's splashable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're calling that forcing blue, then yeah, I'm forcing blue. But I don't know. I, I just really, I'm trying hard. I am trying hard to get into blue. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I am too. I want to be cut out of blue before I don't play blue. That makes sense. Number 28, Tragic Poet is a trap. Yes, it can get back sagas. You can play it with the Eldest Reborn and Lich's Mastery. Uh, like maybe you mill your Lich's Mastery and you want a way to get it back. You know, you're running Windgrace Acolyte and you're, you don't want to dump your, your sweet build around rare in the graveyard. That was the first time you've played it in what, 200 drafts, something like that? Mm-hmm. It's not a good card. It just doesn't do enough. It's a one mana, one, one. You have to have another enchantment have died before you can sacrifice it. It's just too low impact on the board. Yeah, I think a good uh, good rule of thumb, don't put bad cards in your deck to try and make your good cards better. Just play your good cards. Number 29, the age-old fight, Eviscerate versus Vicious Offering. So I think outside of Saprolings, Eviscerate is better than Offering, uh, similarly to why I think Omnivore isn't great outside of Black Green. Minus 2, minus 2 is fine, but it's not super exciting, as the things that are X2s are not really the things you're trying to kill. The larger threats are the things that are more important to kill. So you often need to sacrifice something. So yeah, you can sacrifice something in response to removal or bounce, but there's a, a little bit of a setup cost there. And Eviscerate asks nothing of your deck other than spending four mana to kill something unconditionally, and that's pretty valuable to me. I think I'm on Eviscerate 1 over Vicious Offering 1, but I think I'm on Vicious Offering 2 over Eviscerate 2. What do you think about that? That makes sense to me. I think Eviscerate's very good. I'm first picking Eviscerate over Vicious Offering, and then I think you're right. I think I would want two copies of Vicious Offering just because, like, four drops kind of the line where it's really hard to double spell. Like, you Mm -hmm. you have to have eight mana before you're double spelling with four drops. Yeah. 
Number 30, how to abuse sagas. This is one of my favorite things to do. I just played a deck that did this super well with Time of Ice. So when your saga goes off on its third chapter, so you've got your first chapter, second chapter, you're on your third turn, your draw step, your third chapter goes on the stack. After it's on the stack, before the effect happens, you have a chance to do something to your saga, like bounce it, blink it, etc. So there are a few ways to do that. So blink of an eye, you can bounce it back to your hand. Sentinel of the Pearl Trident, you can exile it until end of turn, where it'll come back into play and trigger the first chapter again. You can have Wrath in play and flash in a Guardians of Koilos with the third trigger on the stack and get your saga back. Have you done that? I have not done that. The reason I, I put that on there is because so many people, when I have sagas on my deck on Twitch chat, are like, oh, we should play Guardians. And Guardians is not really what you want to be doing because unless it's like Eldest Reborn, most of your sagas, you're like aggressively trying to get to the third chapter. So Guardians doesn't quite do the sweetness that we're talking about here. Right. I, that sounds super sweet. I have not done that either. <laughs> Rescue, the single blue return target permanent to your hand, can also get them back to your hand with the third chapter on the stack. And Rona can actually be rebought with the Eldest Reborn and then exile the, the Eldest Reborn from your graveyard. So uh, you kind of have this infinite loop going on there with Eldest Reborn and Rona. And Rona also goes, quote, infinite with Time of Ice. Can you run through that one real quick? Okay, so when Time of Ice third saga goes off, it's, or third chapter goes off, it says... Uh that you return all tapped creatures to their owner's hand. So in response to that, you activate Rona, you pay four mana, tap it to like exile the top card of your library. And then Time of Ice will return Rona to your hand. And then you can cast Rona, exile Time of Ice with a, the ETB ability, and then cast Time of Ice off of Rona. So then you get this like infinite loop. It's quote infinite because it doesn't stop you from decking, but it is a way <laughs> to like continually rebuy Time of Ice, which is a pretty oppressive lock from your, uh, for your opponent. Right, and you'd want seven mana to do that, right? So that you can recast the Time of Ice on that turn so that the only way to break it up would be to have instant speed removal from your opponent. Right, so generally the play pattern is like the Time of Ice, the third chapter goes off, you tap Rona, Rona goes back to your hand, and then you wait for the next turn to recast Rona because theoretically you will have bounced their best two creatures, so you don't need to replay Time of Ice that turn. Um, right. So you can wait until the next turn. But yeah, you definitely want seven mana. I think generally with Rona, unless you feel like you're pretty far ahead, if you can afford to, if you're trying to exile something from the yard, you want to try and be able to cast it the turn you cast Rona. So you can just like immediately lock up that two for one. Makes sense. Number 31, rescue is not last pick trash. Sure, you're going to get it last pick, but uh, I really think that this card is a lot better than people give it credit for. So if you have some sagas, as we just talked about, it's pretty good. Um, it's good with haphazard bombardment. You can like rebuy that after you've destroyed three of the four things that got counters on them. So it's powerful in conjunction with rebuying those enchantments. And then it's also situationally strong in protecting creatures from removal or rebuying enter the battlefield effects like an Academy Journey Mage or a Fire Fist Adept. All of that adds up to something that I think is worth a card, and it's super cheap. So if we're talking about double spelling being important, I think that, that ability of rescue to rebuy something for, for super cheap or save something for remo removal for super cheap is all pretty valuable. I played my first rescue yesterday, and it was in a deck with Siege Gang Commander and Time of Ice. Mm -hmm. And I got a rebuy Siege Gang Commander when my opponent tried to kill it. I purposely waited till I had six mana to cast Siege Gang Commander. And they went to Blink of Light, my Siege Gang Commander, and I rescued it. And it was the best feeling I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, it's yeah, that's those are the situations I think where rescue is is worth including in your deck. 
Yeah. Felt like I was running dive down again. I miss those days. <laughs> All right. Number 32, your most important keeper mall odds. You should commit these to memory with 17 lands in your deck. If you have a one lander on the draw, you're 77% to draw a second land by turn two. So it is okay. And you probably should, if your hand supports it, like with some other cheap cards, you're going to pretty consistently hit your second land drop. If you need to draw two lands in three draws, your odds are 47% on the draw, which is not good. That's yeah. probably like mulligan territory, I think. Right. Because like usually it's that that means like 53% of the time you auto lose. Right. And then like, is it even that good? If you in that 47%, are you going to win the game 47% of the time with that key? Probably not. So you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for disaster there. I need to get back to basics with that. I've been thinking that mulliganing is really bad in this format. So I think I've been keeping looser hands than mm -hmm. I should have. And I've started recently using the odds calculator again more. And I think if you're just a serious spiky player that's going to Grand Prix, you need to have those odds things for those mulligans decisions even more than that. Like those two probably committed to memory. Yeah, for sure. But I think those are the, the two most important. All right, let's talk about number 33, Memorial to Genius versus Divination. I think LSV had this pick in his feature Pro Tour draft. But I think that this is a tough pick. And you made a really good point about intermediate cues versus competitive cues here. So I think Memorial is a better card than Divination, but I feel that taking the first Divination is better than the first Memorial, and I can't really explain why. Do you have thoughts about this? I think there's a couple things. One, I think you want... I want one Memorial to Genius in my deck. I do not want two. Will, will I take two if it's free? Certainly. But like the first one is way better than the second one because it's really clunky. It takes six mana total the turn that you activate it, which is likely your whole turn. And I think divination is a much bigger signal in the intermediate cues. Like I think if you pick a memorial to genius and pass a divination, people are going to think, okay, divination, great, blues open. But if you're passing that memorial to genius, I don't think intermediate cue players take memorial to genius as a signal quite as much. So it's a really hard pick. And I'm going to be really sad if I don't end up with a divination. I'm not going to be as sad if I've got three divinations and I don't end up with Memorial to Genius. Yeah. The times when it feels bad is when you take that first Memorial and then you have a, then you get a second one and you really wish that like, I would much rather have like many, many divinations and one Memorial, as you said. I just feel like that is definitely where you want to be. Three mana to draw to is much better than six mana to draw to. So I'm, I'm on the first divination over the first memorial and then taking memorial over divination and then taking divinations after that. That's where I'm at. Number 34, how do tap lands impact your mana base? Uh, in this format, they generally don't, right? As we talked about, this isn't a, quote, curve out format. So you're not really going to have like a critical mass of tap lands, right? You'll have like maybe some, maybe a duel and a couple memorials. So it's not really going to impact your turns that much because this isn't really a, a curve out format in the classic sense. And you don't really need to worry about a tap land being drawn off the top all that often because you'll probably have more plays. And you especially don't need to worry about it because when you have memorials, you're probably playing 18 lands, as we'll discuss in just a little bit. Yep. Number 35, Cloud Reader Sphinx versus Sarah Angel, pack one, pick one. I could see taking Cloud Reader Sphinx over Sarah Angel here. It's really tough, but Sphinx is splashable and it's in a better color and it's close to the power level of Sarah Angel. It's not as good on offense, right? But like as far as gumming the ground up and card advantage and churning through your deck, it does a lot. Uh, and I think putting yourself into blue or giving yourself the option to be blue and it's splashable. I could see taking Sphinx over Sarah Angel pack one, pick one. I don't know what I would do if I had that decision. I think in the moment I'd pick Sarah Angel, but it's hard. Yeah, I think so too. 
but I, I, I agree. I'm not, not convinced that it's right. Number 36, haphazard bombardment is better than you think. We've talked about it a lot on the show before. We've talked about it on this episode already. This format is slow enough that a card that gets you a three for one over three turns is going to be great if you can let the game go on for that many turns. It's not always going to kill the thing you want when you want to, but by the end of three turns, you're going to have impacted your opponent in a very significant way, especially if you were in the position where blowing up their lands matters. I cannot tell you how many times that this has been a very relevant triple stone rain. Also think about how many times like your opponent has like their one splash land out there before they've cast their splash card. That's very powerful. Haphazard Bombardment is real good. Yeah, and, and it certainly shines in a control deck, right? I do not mm. think it's good in an aggro deck at all. No, 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 not at all. But I don't, I just don't think those decks often exist. That's why I think it's really good in this format. Right. Number 37, staying open in draft has different meanings. So at the start of your draft, staying open can mean taking the best card out of each pack for the first few picks, and maybe they're spread across four colors. Maybe at the end of your first four picks, you have a blue card, a white card, a green card, and a red card. That's sort of staying open. It can also mean staying devoted to just one color so that you're open to any other colors, your second color, in future picks. So for example, maybe you pack one pick, one cloud, or your sphinx, and then you take blink of an eye over eviscerate, despite the fact that eviscerate might be a better card than blink of an eye so that you keep yourself open to deciding what your second color is going to be down the road. Both of those are staying open in the classic sense. Number 38. Honestly, what the heck is Goblin Warchief doing in the set? Like, there are so many cool things about this format, and so many fun build-arounds, and then there's this dumb lord that doesn't do anything. It's raising my win rate, and it's raising your win rate. Ah, I guess that's true. Blah. Number 39, when are you supposed to play 17 lands in this format? That's when you have little to no mana sinks. So I think some of the decks that commonly run into that are white, black, white, red, and maybe the aggressive versions of blue, red. And when you have cantrips like Opt and Warlord's Fury, so again, those cards are going to be most commonly found in the aggressive Blue Reds Wizards version. I've frequently been running seven la 17 lands in my white-black decks. I think that deck's one of the most proactive, curve-out, attack-on-the-ground, run-your-jousting-lances-style decks. So if you look and you don't have a lot of mana sinks, you don't have a lot of kicker, I think that's the time you're supposed to run 17 lands. But I think 17 is the exception and 18 is the rule. So number 40, when to play 18 lands in this format? Most of the time. And when you have mana sinks and or just need more colored sources, this is a, a big thing, I think, too. Like when you're trying to like not impact your mana base a lot or for your main two colors and you still want to splash a powerful card, I think that's also a time when you can decide to run 18 lands. So I think some common mana base configurations that are good, just a 9-9 split in a two color deck with, with about even splits of, of cost and color requirements. 10-8 in a two color deck that's biased towards one of your two colors. You can also have like a 10-4-4 in a deck that's a base color and sort of like double splashing, like you've got four cards of one color and three cards of another color sort of thing. And I think it's also important to note that those decks want surveyors and grow from the ashes as well. You can also have like an 8-8-2 split with a surveyor or a grow if you're trying to do a splash for uh, like a couple cards. So let's, let's talk about, uh, we get this question a lot of like what number of sources you want for splashing cards. Ben, you want to take us through this? Yeah, so I think the rules of thumb, the heuristics are three sources for two or fewer cards, four sources for two to three cards that you're splashing, and five sources for three to four cards that you might be splashing. And past that, you're not splashing. You're just playing <laughs> a full-on three-color pile. Just be honest with yourself. 
And I think those I think those mana bases that you ran through are the ones that are good. And I have seen, you know, we've got a lot of people in Discord. And I assume if you're like a patron of our show and you're in Discord and you listen to the show and you like the show that much, you're a good magic player. And I have seen some sketchy, sketchy mana bases in the Discord. So just be sure that you're I think one of the best things you can do in this format is not stumble on mana, like hitting your land drops and hitting your colors. So just make sure you're trying to really play a good mana base. And those sources are like actual lands of that color in this format, pretty much grow from the ashes and skittering surveyor, maybe a navigator's compass. Yeah, maybe. That's maybe, it. Maybe. Yeah, that's it. That's all you get. Number 41, non-land mana sources do not necessarily mean that you should run fewer lands. So what do we mean by non-land mana sources? That would be Llanowar Elves, Elfheim Druid, Grow from the Ashes, cards like that that are mana sources, but they're not actual lands. I've really struggled with this in green decks. I feel like there's a lot of tension here. So can you run through just kind of what you've been doing in your green decks uh, when you have these types of cards? So this is very, very deck dependent, in my opinion. I generally assume that about three land producers or mana producers equals one land. So then I would go down to 17. So if I've got a couple land or elves and an elf druid or three skittering surveyors or something like that, then I'll, I'll probably go down a land. But I have certainly run 18 lands with three elves based on having memorials and powerful top end and card draw and recursion and all that, like, and not been mad. Or if I have ways to use the, the creatures in board, if I have like a Thalid Omnivore or Thalid Soothsayer, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I would say that these, this is you really need to take a look at your deck and think about how the games are going to play out before you just auto decide that, well, I have elves, so I should run fewer lands. That's often going to be the case, but definitely not necessarily. And I think another thing to consider is that like getting to three lands is very, very important when you have something like Skittering Surveyor or Grow from the Ashes, and you're counting on that for mana. So you really want to hit that third land drop. And to do so, you're going to need 17 lands in your deck. You want to consistently hit land drops. You do not want to miss them. So I would just say, like, prioritize things that give you flood insurance rather than deciding that you want to run fewer lands. Right. I always feel, I feel fine with these cards when I'm in blue-green and I've got divinations and weight of memories to make up card draw. There, I'm not worried about flooding at all. Where I get into, like, awkward situations is I played, like, a red-green kicker deck with two Elfheim Druids and a Grow from the Ashes. And then, like, all of a sudden, that's like, if I run 17 lands with those three cards, that's 20 mana sources in my deck. And yeah. I'm just like worried about flooding or not having enough action. Just like hope that you get two Kelvin Raiders in that deck. That's yeah. what I would say to you. Yeah, yeah. Number 42, Arbor Armament is bad. This card is not what you want to be doing against Flyers. It's best used on defense, and the counter, the plus one, plus one counter that you get is not really that relevant. So this is the single green instant, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature, and it gains reach until end of turn. So if you're using this card at its most effective, you're casting it into open mana on your opponent's turn, which is just asking to get blown out and get two for one. If you're weak to Flyers, Pierce the Sky is infinitely better, and it's a better main deck card than Arbor Armament. I would look to never play Arbor Armament in this format. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ben, we got like about six minutes left. Let's we got to plow through these final <laughs> final points. Number 43, when is Llanowar Scout good? So it's good when you have card draw like Divination or Dark Bargain to keep lands flowing so that it actually ramps you. Like if you can put two lands into play off this card, I feel like you've really done it. It also excels with Tatiova because Tatiova, when you play that land and then it draws you into another land, you kind of feel like you, you haven't like done the thing you want. Well, then Llanowar Scout helps bail you out drops that land that you draw off Tatiova, you draw another card. I'm not like looking to run this card, but if I don't get the Llanowar Elves and the Elfheim Druids for my ramp decks, this can do just fine. Yeah. Number 44, you should be main decking artifact and enchantment removal. There are some bombs. Here's a list. In Bolus's Clutches, On Sarah's Wings, Icy Manipulator, 
Helm of the Host, Forebear's Blade, all the sagas. And if you don't face down those, it's probably still not going to be a dead card game one against random like blood tallow candles, jousting lances. You're going to find targets for your artifact and enchantment removal. And most of the time, you're going to be glad you put them in your deck. Speaking of number 45, Jousting Lance is real. You should be picking Jousting Lance higher if you want to attack on the ground. This card goes well in most white decks because most white decks are assertive. Um, it combos really well with your like lifelinking unicorns, with tapping stuff down with Dominant Trapper if you find yourself running those cards. Putting it on a flyer can really increase your, your clock in the air. It just does a lot and I think should be in a lot of assertive decks. And I don't think you wheel them anymore. So I think it's similar to... Pirates Cutlass power level in Whoa. What? No, in 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 aggressive decks that are wanting to attack on the ground, which is like an eighth of the format. So like, but if you're in one of those decks or if you think you're heading towards one of those decks, you need a jousting lance in your deck, in my opinion. Alright, alright, I'll buy it. Number forty-six, be patient during the draft. Uh, pack one can often seem like a mess. It's hard to read signals. People are trying to find their lane, feel things out. And there's a lot of powerful cards. So, you know, maybe somebody opens a fight with fire and they really want to play it. So they're trying to stay open and like figure out what their second color could be that maybe they could get a lot of cards of if they're getting cut out at red. So you might get a lot of mixed signals. If you're a good limited player. Trust your card evaluations. Take fixing very highly. Take dual lands highly. Take colorless cards highly. Take skittering surveyor highly. And I think things are generally going to work themselves out in packs two and packs three. But don't get frustrated. That's one of the worst things you can do in this format in pack one. I've had so many drafts where I feel like pack one is such a train wreck. And then I end up with a fantastic deck by the end of the draft. And I think you just like need to stay cool, as you said, and, and feel things out and, and just be patient. Your lane will present itself to you. Number 47. Don't get too cute in this format. Try to avoid going deep just for the sake of going deep in the format. I'm only looking to be two colors if I can. Maybe with a light splash of one color. Like, yeah, sometimes I'm like trying to meme when I'm on stream, but like I'm a spike at heart and I am trying to win. So even if I'm memeing, I'm trying to win. Uh, I only end up in three or four color decks if the draft forces me into it. If there's like no real clear lane and it's just like, here's a bunch of powerful cards, try and make the mana work. It feels like people get distracted by all the powerful stuff and uh, drafts can get derailed even into pack three. So just stay focused. Yeah. I don't get there's a lot of shiny objects in the format. <laughs> don't don't get distracted by all the shiny things. Just two colors, maybe a splash. I think that's what you should be aiming for. Number 48, how to play a non-wizard aggro. You should draft a normal curve. You want a classic, you want an Ixalan curve, rivals of Ixalan. Well, maybe not a rival of, of Ixalan curve. That was the Dawn curve format. <laughs> you want an Ixalan curve, two drops, three drops, four drops, five drops. You know what a good curve looks like. Prioritize your jousting lance, good two and three drop creatures, the Knight of Malice and whatever the other knights called the white and the black knights. Those are the best two drops in the format, I think. And three mana three twos really have a place in these decks that want to attack on the ground to win. Uh, Diabonet Trapper, the Pizza Mage, some of those cards. And then you want at the top of your curve, you want the five drop removal. You want your Eviscerates. You want your Blessed Lights to try to kill your cards uh, that your opponent's going to play to stop you, like Mammoth Spider and Cloud Reader Sphinx. You really want to value double spelling here. I think that's crucial to the success of the aggro decks. I think that's how you get ahead and stay ahead. So cards like Adamant Will, Brute Force, those combat tricks. What is Brute Force? I saw that listed on here. What card are you talking about? Is that not plus three, plus three and Trample? Run Amok. <laughs> Run Amok, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Brute Force is like an old magic card. I think that's like the, yeah, the like giant growth in red. Yeah. Uh, Like clearly I play Run Amok all the time and it's a very important (laughs) card to me in this format. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's that's Great. what you do. Run those brute forces. Just run those brute forces. <laughs> you heard it here first. Forty nine. How to abuse Whisper Blood Liturgist. Okay, this card. This is the three and a black two two that you can tap, sacrifice two creatures you control to put a creature from your graveyard into play. It goes especially well in black, green, and red, green. It combines well with creatures that make multiple bodies like Deathbloom Thalad and Yavamaya Sapper that you can then recur. It goes incredibly well with Garn of the Blood Flame. goes well with some self-mill like Windgrace Acolyte. You want to have cards with good enter the battlefield abilities and have like one to two bombs to recur. So if you really have like a powerful thing that you can get back that your opponent's really going to try and kill dead, um, that puts them in an awkward position because like are they trying to kill your bomb or are they trying to kill your way to recur your bomb and then if you even have like a memorial to folly or a soul salvage as backup for your opponent dealing with whisper that's going to also go super well with your whole like well i'm self-milling i'm trying to recur my sweet cards i think that's all going to go really well to maximizing this pretty powerful uncommon i feel like we're up against the clock number 50 dominaria is a fantastic limited format but it's unbalanced it's super fun very deep complex set but blue is head and shoulders above the rest of the other colors and does not make for a balanced, limited environment. But that being said, I really enjoy drafting this format. I could do another 100, 150 drafts, and I will still be very entertained. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of this format. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, like, the fact that we... I just feel like we played Ixalan for a million years, and now this format is on, like, almost over. Like, Corset's going to be out. But I guess that's the good thing, is, like, once... Unless Corset is, like, super deep, which it probably won't, like, we can still draft this over the summer, which will be good. I have an important question for you. Yeah. Vintage Cube is coming out on Wednesday. Are you going to be playing Vintage Cube, or are you going to be playing Dominaria? I think I'm still playing Dominaria. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel priced into playing Vintage Cube, but, like, I'm going to feel bad about not playing Dominaria if I'm playing Vintage Cube. It is honestly really going to depend on what other people are streaming. And I feel like most people will be streaming Cube, so I'll probably stick with Dominaria. All right, that's it. That's our... That's our 50 takes in 50 minutes. We, we did it. I mean, I don't know exactly how long that segment was, but I think we, we got there. I, my, my timer says, uh, says 50 minutes and like 45 seconds. So give or take what we did. We, we definitely rushed through there at the end. But hopefully that was fun and informative because I think we got a lot of, of facts out there, a lot of opinions out there, and a lot of updates about our thoughts on cards and situations in this format. Right. And a lot of that stuff's the stuff that comes up once you get 50 drafts deep. And maybe, you know, some of our listeners probably don't have the opportunity to draft 50 times. So we can Mm -hmm. give you that information and save you save you the trouble of doing those 50 drafts yourself so that you can have that edge on your 10th draft or your 15th draft. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to do this show with you for an entire year. I really like it's been better than I ever could have hoped it was. Yeah, I, I think we got super lucky with our chemistry and, you know, we're both on top of it type people. I, we've never missed a week. We've never missed a Monday or a Tuesday. We've crushed it. Yeah, doing great. Man, does that mean we have to talk about Cube next week? I don't know. Ah, well, we'll have to figure it out. We'll see. I, I feel I feel exhausted after planning this 50 topics in 50 <laughs> minutes episode. So I'm going to take a few days off now. All right. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. The Dominaria treasure hunt is completed. The 15-hour stream is a go, but that does not mean that we are not still taking submissions for it. We'll get an end date for you at some point, um, but we definitely want people to still be tweeting at us or emailing us their sweet, sweet screenshots of their sweet board states with those treasure hunt achievements unlocked. If you get five of them unlocked, you get entered into a giveaway for a free draft on Magic Online that we will provide for you. 
Yeah. So as a reminder, you can tweet at Lords of Limited and hashtag those with DOM Treasure Hunt. And if you're not on Twitter, email us screenshots at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with us individually, please come spam our Twitch chats. It's summertime for Ben. He is streaming all the time now. Twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for him. Twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me. We're both on Twitter at those same handles. And of course, as Ben said, you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, or you just want to shoot us a congrats on 50 episodes email, lordsoflimited at gmail.com is the place to do that. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening for an entire year, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.